Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Prose. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, pros is made for people not hair and skin types, personalization is rooted in everything they do from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I use the review and refine feature and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. See here, Dumbledore, said Fudge, and Harry was astonished to see a slight smile dawning on his face. You, you can't seriously believe that. You know who? Back? Come now, come now. Certainly Crouch may have believed himself to be acting upon you-know-who's order, but to take the word of a lunatic like that, Dumbledore. I'm Matt Potts. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is a special episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. We want to let you know that we are in a slightly different recording space today, so we might sound a little bit different, but it's for a really fun reason. Caitlin, Matt, and I are all in the same room. Matt, we are continuing our collaboration with the Greater Good Science Center, exploring intellectual humility. And you and I have been obsessed with a question upon this reread of Goblet of Fire that it turns out is a question about intellectual humility. And so we thought that that would be a great jumping off point for another conversation about this really important topic. In our wrap-up episode last week, we spoke a lot about Dumbledore's failure to get Harry out of this competition. I mean, there, there's like evidently this rule that a competitor has to compete, but there's so many obvious ways out of that. As you said in last week's episode, Harry could walk up to the starting line of any of these events and say, I forfeit. And then that's it. I mean, there are not difficult ways out of this situation. And we were wondering last week, why doesn't Dumbledore do it? I think we'll talk more about it as we get into the deeper theme conversation. But one of the reasons, I think, is because Dumbledore lacks some intellectual humility. Like, he's not just 
unwilling to consider options besides the ones that he's pursuing. He doesn't even know that there are other options. I think a lot of the staff at Hogwarts does not realize that there are other options. And I think that's a sign of intellectual pride or whatever the opposite of intellectual humility is. So Vanessa, we originally visited this topic of intellectual humility in chapter 14 of this book on the chapter entitled The Unforgivable Curses. And we had a guest on, Professor Daryl Von Tongeren, who's a professor at Hope College in Michigan. And he talked to us about what intellectual humility was. And it was important, I think, in that episode that he clarified it's not the same thing as just like performed lowliness or like to grovel or like the kind of maybe caricature of humility we talk about. Like he talked about intellectual humility as right-sizedness, mm -hmm. like not pretending to be less worthy than you are, but also like knowing your own limits, like mm -hmm. recognizing what you don't know and being curious about the things that you don't know. And particularly around ideas and beliefs, like ones that, that maybe are unfamiliar to you or that belong to other people, like trying to, be, to understand where others are coming from, where their beliefs come from, as a way to kind of recognize that your own knowledge is limited and your experience of the world is limited and can be opened up by others' experiences and beliefs. Matt, I remember loving the etymology of humility, but I do not remember what it was. I just remember the feeling. Do you mind reminding us what the etymology of humility is? Absolutely. So, I mean, there's an etymology to both words, right? Mm -hmm. The word oh, humility yes. comes from a Latin word hummus, which means earth, not the tasty dip. I remember <laughs> we covered that in the last episode, but we're talking about the earth. And so there's this idea of lowliness, like being like salt of the earth or close to the earth. And intellectual comes from inter, which is like between, and then legere means to select or to read. So there's something about like reading between the lines or mm -hmm. having discernment. And so this idea about humility going along with discernment, like knowing when and how to judge things and how to judge them well, which is really important. I mean, I remember one of the things that you talked about that I really appreciated was just sort of how, you know, humility as a virtue is really gendered and raced. And we should be worried about like foisting humility as a virtue upon whole classes of people, especially ones whose opinions are often suppressed or disregarded. And Daryl allayed some of our fears by saying, like, you know, intellectual humility is one tool among many. It's not mm -hmm. always appropriate. And sometimes the most important thing is to, to stand up and say your own viewpoint and where it comes from and to speak it loudly. So, you know, we're not trying to say, like, this is the only thing. But we do want to think about how recognizing that your own knowledge is limited is a really important part to growing as a person and understanding the world in better ways. All of that makes me want to just jump into something about book four, because I think that Goblet of Fire, amongst so many other things, does such a great job of summarizing at least my opinion, as someone who's never done it, of studying abroad, right? That my understanding of study abroad, and this is certainly my experience of traveling, is that you go to another country to learn about the culture and the ways of the other country, but you mostly end up hanging out with people who speak your language and are in your program and you get really excited when it turns out that someone is from like the same region as you what you're from michigan i'm from illinois <laughs> like we're basically in the same family right and that and then you do learn some about the culture but you don't actually immerse yourself in the culture and there are all sorts of good reasons for that too right you don't want to be too invasive being a tourist being a visitor is hard welcoming visitors is hard but i think often 
we hope that studying abroad is going to be about intellectual humility and it actually ends up being about something else. I remember a lot of people coming back from study abroad, not with a ton of humility, but <laughs> I like, I learned the better way to do whatever, <laughs> right. you peasant who stayed behind. And you're like, mm. and I think that book four does a pretty good job of showing, right, like, these other schools come to Hogwarts and then we don't hear about any of the students other than Fleur and Crumb. Like, is no one staying in Gryffindor Tower? Why isn't there just, like, a French girl named Marie-Louise who's just hanging out in Gryffindor and struggling with her, you know, English-speaking classes? Like, we don't hear anything about it. No curiosity about these different cultures. Just, like, booyah base bless you, right? And I, I actually think it's a great tableau of a lack of intellectual humility when confronted with cultures that are different than yours. And in fact, it seems like that's the way the competition is set up. Yeah. Right? Like, we'll keep everyone separate and see which is best. <laughs> yes. Like, which culture needs to learn the least about the other cultures because it's already <laughs> awesome. Like, that seems like what the competition is and what everyone gets kind of invested in, which is, I mean, when you think about like how these international competitions go, that is kind of the ethos behind it. Like, yeah. right, we cheer for our team because they're our team, right? That's, Yeah. I mean, the other thing you talk about, just I've been recently trying to learn a new language on my own, and I've been reading about like successful ways to learn language and, you know, polyglots, how they learn language. And there's no single way. All these polyglots have different techniques. The thing that they have in common is they are super enthusiastic about being wrong. They like love learning a language so much that they are happy to walk into a public space and embarrass themselves <laughs> with native speakers because that, that, that's what it takes. You yeah. have to realize you don't know. Yeah. You have to be corrected and mess it up. Yeah. And, like, it's, a, I think, a perfect example of the kind of thing Daryl was talking about, which is, like, unless you go in a situation willing to be proven wrong, you're actually not going to know everything you don't know, right? Yeah. And I think this is another thing we see happening in this book a lot because, as we spoke about in the wrap-up episode last week, Dumbledore has this problem seeing what he can't see or recognizing what he can't recognize, right? Harry's name is entered into the... Goblet of Fire as a champion in this Triwizard Tournament, now a four-wizard tournament. And everyone just kind of throws up their hands and says, oh, I guess Harry's in it. And they don't spend any energy trying to figure out how they can get Harry out of this tournament or get him not to compete or spare him from being a part of this. Something they all know is not the right thing. It should not be happening. And I want to talk about this with Dumbledore because if intellectual humility is a virtue, then its opposite, vice, must be something like intellectual pride, right? Like this unwillingness to recognize what's outside or having too much confidence in your own opinion and beliefs is something like pride or intellectual pride. And I think that's something that's going on with maybe the whole Hogwarts staff, but with Dumbledore, certainly. Now, I am wondering what you think about this theory that I just had and so haven't thought through yet. Does Dumbledore have even more intellectual pride around the Triwizard Tournament because he helped set it up, right? He set up the age line. Everybody is like, no one is going to be able to cross the age line. Dumbledore set up the age line. Fred and George can't do it, right? There's just such confidence that only people who are qualified to put their name in the Goblet of Fire will be able to do that. Do you think that it's possible that he can't see other possibilities? Because he's like, I really thought it through, and this is a foolproof plan. There must be something else happening. I don't know. For me, that would cause even more self-doubt, but I'm wondering if there's a point at which you're like, right, a neurosurgeon, and you're looking at a brain, and you're like, no, I can see it. I did everything perfectly, and therefore you can't see past it. 
I think that's right. And I think it's related to a larger kind of intellectual pride that Dumbledore has, which is just around the fact of Voldemort. I think that Dumbledore may be the only wizard powerful enough on his own to face Voldemort. I think that gives him a particular kind of pride. But I also think that he's the only wizard who believes Voldemort is returning or has a strong belief that Voldemort's returning. And so he doesn't feel like he has outside voices that he can listen to to help him figure this out, right? Yeah. And I think those things fold in on each other. I think that he thinks he knows best, mm -hmm. but also everyone around him proves to him that he knows best by denying the possibility that Voldemort might have returned. Yeah. There are others like Sirius Black or whatever, but the power relations role is yeah. so complicated there that he doesn't really look to Sirius for advice necessarily, I don't think, at this point. And so I think he is kind of trapped in being right on his own. There aren't folks he can look to to help him expand his vision, expand the possibilities of his knowledge, help him see what he can't see, except for like children, mm -hmm. right, who he should be listening to more. And I think his pride is one that makes him kind of dismiss these folks as children. And so he doesn't really listen to Harry. He doesn't really listen to these others in the way that he ought to and that might expand his vision. And insofar as Dumbledore, I think, catches on pretty quickly that the Triwizard Tournament has been hijacked by some agent trying to, to harm Harry because he thinks he's the only person who can actually protect Harry and who understands the threat to Harry. He's not able to reach outside the limits of his own knowledge. And that means that his actions are constrained and his choices are constrained. Don't you think? Yeah, I think that this is potentially an experiment, right? He's like, oh, I did a really good job and there is apparently a hole in my plan. I need to let like the water run through the maze to see where the hole is. And Harry participating in this is gonna lead mm -hmm. to that hole. And I'm so good, I'll be able to stop it right before something actually bad happens. And so... There's some humility in that of like, oh, it turns out that my world like is capable of being invaded, but I can stop it before anything bad happens. Or even if I can't stop it before anything bad happens, I need to know where the hole is. And so if there's a victim in that, there's a victim in that. And so be it. But the other thing that you said that really struck a chord with me is the isolation in leadership, right? Like I run a very small company. I do not have the kind of power Dumbledore has. But that combination of, like, this is too big of a problem for me to feel like I can trust my own thoughts on it, but also I'm the boss and, A, other people might not feel comfortable being honest with me because they might be scared because of my power, or, B, like, it's not their job to help me solve this, right? Like, this is sort of above their pay grade in whatever way, is really isolating. And so I understand why at some point one of your options that feels like a good option is it's only me. I have to decide this on my own. Um, and I think that that's true. And also there are ways to sort of build a network of support and trust, ideally. And I wish we saw more of that in Dumbledore, the conversation with McGonagall, who is someone who he can trust and who respects him a great deal and probably doesn't tell him every critical thought she has, but I do think would tell him what she thought about how Harry could participate in a different way or you know, I, I just wish we saw more of those moments. And I do think it's really interesting that one of the only moments like that we see in the headmaster's office is after Dumbledore dies. Mm -hmm. McGonagall calls one of those meetings. And it is entirely possible that there are these kinds of heads of house staff meetings while Dumbledore is alive and we just don't see them. But I find it telling that we never see them, but we see it on the first day McGonagall becomes headmistress. Yeah, I really identify with what you said about sort of leading an organization. I mean, I'm, I'm the head of the church at Harvard, and 
in some ways, I don't feel like there are peers I can speak to about right. that at Harvard. I mean, I have people I work for, people in the upper administration, but to some degree, their interests are for the university at large, and the church, you know, has its own relationship to the priorities of the university at large. And I also, you know, worry about kind of foisting the problems of leadership on people who work for me. And I think your example of like McGonagall is so apt and so correct. I mean, I, I imagine that if Dumbledore had called McGonagall, maybe even Snape, right, mm -hmm. and, or other heads of houses into his office and said, listen, Harry should not be in this tournament. How do we get him out of this tournament? Mm -hmm. Like, they come up with a plan, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a way in which he can invite other voices in. Right. I feel like sometimes you call a meeting and you're like, I don't know what this meeting is except that I'm in crisis, right? Like, a kid is in here. What do we do? I don't even think you need to have a specific question sometimes. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And I think there are ways to, you know, preserve one's authority or preserve one's responsibility, maybe is the better word, yeah. without foisting on others while also inviting others and, and acknowledging that, like, boy, there are options here that might not be visible to me or obvious to me. And I really like your analogy of, like, finding a leak in the system, like, running it through and figuring out where something goes wrong. I think another symptom or sign of his intellectual pride is that he's not paying attention to victims who are already there, right? Like, right. we know about Bertha Jerkins. I think he suspects Bertha, something untoward has happened to Bertha. Yeah. We know he some, says, right? I remember her. Yeah, right. And and we also know that Barty Crutch Sr., something happened to Barty Crutch Sr., right. right? Like, this is out of control. Like, Dumbledore should know it's out of control before the moment when a student dies. Because people are already dying yeah. before this, right? And I think it is because... Dumbledore is so fixated upon Harry's role in this drama between Voldemort and the rest of the Wizarding World and so focused upon Harry as the mechanism by which Voldemort is defeated that he's not paying attention to other people who are dying in the meantime, right? And that means that he's not paying attention to leaks. He's not seeing where they are. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Prose. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, Prose is made for people not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. 
And so I used the review and refine feature and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. I do think that there's a character sort of in plain sight who shows us a different way than Dumbledore's. And it's a very different situation. But Hermione, right, she's not a leader in the way that Dumbledore is. She doesn't have the same pressures on her. In fact, she is heaping pressures upon herself, like figuring out who Rita Skeeter is that no one has assigned to her. This is not her job. But I think it's so interesting the amount of humility that is required in order to figure out this question that is nagging her of how is Rita Skeeter getting these secrets. And I just learned an expression that is when furious, get curious. And I feel like that is mapped perfectly onto Hermione. She is livid. Like, how did Rita Skeeter find out about Hagrid? How did she find out that Victor invited me to visit him in Bulgaria? Ron in the corner being like, what? He did what? Anyway, we'll leave that for another time. And she just stays so open to every possibility that the word bug, right? Like, what is she bugging us? creates this epiphany for her where she's like, bug, bug, she could be a bug. And it's an incredible amount of intellectual humility that allows for that big of a leap of discovery. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, if you compare it with Dumbledore, who is presented with an impossibility, Harry is in the Triwizard Tournament. The course of action Hogwarts takes and Dumbledore takes is like, well, I guess we'll just keep going because Mm -hmm. I know I did everything right. So the answer will you know, it will play out at some point. As you said, like the leak in the system will be exposed. Whereas Hermione encounters an impossibility that Rita Skeeter could get all this information. And what she says is, oh, the world must not be the way I think it is. Mm -hmm. There must be something in the world that I can't even imagine right now. Mm -hmm. Because if it were true, the impossible would not be possible. And so she just starts exploring all kinds of things that she thinks are not possible and allows this little clue like the bug to trigger an idea in her, which she doesn't dismiss She doesn't say to herself, oh, my gosh, that's impossible. She Mm -hmm. goes, investigates it, and figures out the truth. And that is this kind of, as in so many cases with Hermione, like this example of, like, this virtue. Like, this is what it means to be truly open, truly imaginative, truly available to your worldview being upended and thrown upside down. And it allows her to figure out what's going on and unlawfully confine another person. In a jar. In a jar. Yeah, it's so funny. I, there are a few things, right? One, Hermione is like these polyglots that you're talking about. She just loves learning so much. And she's like, I'll make a fool out of myself. Maybe she's an guess. Maybe she's a beetle. I don't know. And then she's like, nah, I was wrong. And But in this moment, she's like, no, I'm right. And that gives her confidence and ends the intellectual humility here, right? There are so many things that she could do other than blackmail Rita Skeeter and lock her in a jar, right? She could go talk to McGonagall. She could go talk to Dumbledore. She could do any of the things that we think Dumbledore should do. And in fact, because she's a kid, she actually has more rights culturally to that. And yet she just decides to completely take matters into her own hands. 
I think because she's so smart, she figured this out. There's a little bit of like, (laughs) I'm the best. She is the best, but bad move. Yeah, Vanessa, one of the best teachers I ever had was Mr. McGinnis, my seventh grade science teacher. And I remember he loved teaching seventh grade. He loved middle school. And I, I remember, like, it was at some, like, open house event at the start of school, and some parent asking him, like, why do you love middle school so much? Like, incredulous yeah. that a person could love middle school uh, so as much. As a former middle school teacher, I am <laughs> <Right>. incredulous. <laughs> and Mr. McGinnis said it's because in seventh grade, they haven't lost the willingness to be wrong. Mm-hmm. Like, when you ask a question, all their hands still shoot up, and they're still open to learning. He said three years from now, if they don't know the answer to a question, they're going to sit and look down and hope nobody calls on them. But right now, they're still going to engage. And he said, with science, like, that's everything. You have to be able to get in there and be wrong and be curious and have your world upended the way you expect things to be upended. And so that's why, like, he landed right at seventh grade science and never wanted to be anywhere else. Mm. Let's talk about one more situation that may have to do with intellectual humility in this chapter. And it's just with like the Triwizard or Four Wizard Tournament in general. And these four champions mm-hmm. that part of what's at stake in them figuring out each of these events or what they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to get through these events, like depends upon them recognizing that they don't have the answers. Mm-hmm. I mean, ironically, like there's a rule that they're not supposed to seek help from other people. You're supposed to like be this isolated island of your own expertise. But practically speaking, we know everyone is sourcing as much other information as possible, which really is the lesson, right? Like, oh, if you don't have the answers, the right thing to do is to reach out to others for answers. And we know that folks are doing this. We know this happens between Harry and Cedric, obviously. We know that Harry gets help from from Dobby about the gillyweed in the second event. We know that Madame Maxime helps Fleur, right? There's one situation, though, I want to think about in terms of right-sizedness. Daryl, in the episode we referenced from chapter 14, talked about intellectual humility as being right-sized. And it made me think about the first task. In the first task, when the champions have to face these dragons, Sirius helps Harry be very right-sized about this event. Sirius encourages Harry to think about, like, what he's good at. Like, Harry's a flyer, and so what he should do is fly. Not try to do stuff he can't do to try to get around this dragon, but to do what he can. And so he Accio's his firebolt, and he flies around, and he does a really good job getting past the Hungarian horntail. Meanwhile, Crumb, who is probably a better flyer mm-hmm. than Harry, like, tries to use brute force, casts some spell, doesn't even think of flying, the text tells us, casts a spell at the dragon's eye, and ends up completing the task but getting pretty badly burned mm-hmm. and also hurting the dragon, and the dragon steps on one of the eggs, right? And so Crumb completes the task, but it's much more violent. It causes him harm. Obviously, all these things because Crumb was not being right-sized. Crumb was trying to, like, like do something else or be something else or could only imagine brute force as the solution. Harry's right-sizedness, understanding his own gifts and talents and using those as best he can, is actually what gets him through the task more successfully than anybody else. Yeah. I love that point of when you don't know what to do to, you know, call on your gifts, right? Be like, okay, what are the things that I'm good at? What are the things that I can offer here as a first step when confronted with something really difficult? It's an interesting contest, right? Because I'm thinking about like Jeopardy. Once you're up there, you're alone and you shouldn't look things up because that's cheating, right? But you can have everybody help you study. And I guess it's not these individuals competing. It's the schools competing. We've educated our students by 17 enough that they can do this. 
which again is why it's so troubling that they let Harry compete because it goes against the premise of the program, right? It would be like if you had three Jeopardy contestants and then you were like, hey, get off the street. You got to go compete. <laughs> like the other three have been studying. They don't know what questions they're going to get on the day, but they've been studying. And so it's an interesting moment when it's okay to push someone out on their own. Or I'm thinking about a play, right? An actor goes out on their own. They have to say their soliloquy, but they have practiced with other people. You don't make someone else do that who hasn't studied. And so I think it's fine to have moments where it's like, okay, now it's just me and the dragon. But yeah, you have to have done a lot of the work ahead of time before you go out and face the dragon or go on Jeopardy or on the stage. I think that feeds into this whole problem we see in wizarding culture generally, which is like, we talked about this in the wrap-up episode last week also, like the great man theory of history, right? right? Like, oh, one person has to rescue us on his own or represent all of us, rather than what's really effective, which is teamwork, which yeah. is people working together, right? Which is what actually does defeat Voldemort in the end and is actually successful in all of these events, right? Like, we're going to pretend that a person is doing this on their own, but what's actually happening is people are working together. And by the way, shouldn't that be what we cultivate in wizarding cultures, right. that people do work together and get support from one another. And, and and you're right, by implication, the fact that these schools are competing is saying like, oh, our school culture, our school community is the kind of school that builds up successful wizards like this. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's this, the, the idea that these competitions are meant to be isolating individuals as individual heroes or champions is folding into this kind of intellectual pride, I guess, mm -hmm. if we're going to use that term. I remember the moment in seventh grade history when I was taught that Rosa Parks wasn't just like one brave woman who did something incredible but was a part of a movement and knew this bus driver and that this had been calculated and supported and all of these things. And instead of being impressed, I remember being disappointed. And it's interesting. I don't know if that's an American thing that because I was raised that like you got to go out there and do it on your own. When really, as I've gotten older, I find it so comforting, right? That I'm like, oh, she had all this support and planning. And she was incredibly brave to be the person. And, like, she is a hero, but there were all of these other heroes behind her who were also doing so much work to make that be the moment that it ended up being. But it's funny how there's part of our egos. There's, like, you know, part of our pride that wants it to be possible, that it can just be us that is, you know, this inciting incident. Yeah, and I think the really fascinating thing with the Harry Potter series is that this is the ideology that I think the series as a whole is trying to unpack and pull apart from the beginning. I mean, the first chapter in the whole series is The Boy Who Lived, and it's all about how this one baby <laughs> beat Voldemort and is our only solution to the problem of Voldemort. And everyone is becomes, if they're not convinced of it in chapter one, they become gradually more convinced, including us readers, all through the series until book seven when we realize, oh, it's everybody rallying around Harry and it is the full community. But along the way, like the series also lifts up that ideology and supports it and buttresses it in different ways. And the Triwizard Tournament is one of those places. And what's really interesting with respect to, you know, the, the stuff that Daryl works on at the Greater Good Science Center is that there is this pridefulness or this lack of intellectual humility that goes along with this idea that any one person has the answer on their own. What we should be striving for is developing the sort of relationships that we can get the answers we don't have on our own and respond to crises with better solutions than just 
Rosa Parks walks on a bus by herself or Harry faces Voldemort by herself. When what actually happens is that large communities gather around issues and causes and individuals to make a change. Something I've learned as I've gotten older is that whenever I think a movement or an idea started, it always started like 25 or 100 years before I know that it started. Because, right, like, just so much work has to be done before something gets clarified and indoctrinated into our way of thinking. And so whenever I have to guess, I'm just like, I think that started in 1969. So it probably started in 1950. (laughs) And, like, usually then it's, like, 1912. And you're like, okay. And, like, we see that with Harry, right? He couldn't have been the boy who lived if his parents hadn't been doing all of this work. If Dumbledore hadn't been skeptical of Voldemort, you know, even as a kid, so much stuff. It didn't start the night that Harry, quote, unquote, beat Voldemort. We don't know when these things start. It takes collaboration beyond what we can imagine. And I think it's exciting to realize that it's not on you, right? Like, it's annoying to be like, well, I can't save the world, but it's exciting to realize that it doesn't have to be you who saves the world. Yeah, that's right. That you have partners. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be all yours to carry and bear, yeah. Matt, thank you so much for doing this sort of like special episode exploration of intellectual humility. I think that this is such an apt book to be exploring these topics. This book is, I think of it as sort of a hinge, right? It takes the books from being a series about kids to being a series about young warriors. And I think that this is where a lot of groundwork is laid that will follow us through the rest of the books. I'm really grateful for the Greater Good Science Center to invite us to focus on intellectual humility with this book in particular. So thanks for this conversation. Thank you, Vanessa. And thanks to the Greater Good Science Center. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So, Matt, we thought it would be fun to bless a character in terms of their relationship with intellectual humility. Who would you like to bless? I'd like to bless Cornelius Fudge, 
actually, you know, we started the episode with a quote from Cornelius when he shows the opposite of intellectual humility. He shows a lot of pridefulness, ridicules Dumbledore for even imagining that Voldemort could come back. So he's not intellectually humble at all. And it has some really awful consequences, right? Not only consequences for the wizarding world at large, and not only like many, many deaths and a lot of suffering, but also his own death, which is terrible. And so in Blessing Kim, like, I'm not trying to bless him for his humility. I'm just trying to acknowledge that these failures have real consequences, even when they're ones that we don't intend. You know, honestly, it makes me think about 2015, 2016, I did not think it was possible that Donald Trump could become president of the United States. For that reason, I did not take it seriously necessarily. The polls, I found reasons to like disregard them or to believe them too much and did not work really hard in places where I might have put forth some effort, like my home state of Michigan, to try to change the outcome of an election I thought could only go one way. Mm -hmm. And that was a profound lack of intellectual humility, mm -hmm. right? I wasn't paying enough attention. I thought things weren't possible. And I don't think my efforts would have necessarily changed everything, but I certainly didn't put forth enough effort, yeah. <laughs> right? I think it just shows that, like, these kinds of complacencies are not unique to people who are so obviously wrong, like Cornelius Fudge, and in fact that maybe many of us are more wrong than we think a lot of the time, and that's why we need to be intellectually humble. So a blessing for Fudge in spite of all his failures, just because I worry that those kinds of failures are ones that, you know, maybe I and maybe others sometimes share more often than we like to admit. I remember talking to you the day of the election and saying, I'm already mad that it took us this long to get a female president. Like, that's how not humble I was. Yeah. I was already mad about Hillary winning. I was like, yeah. this should have happened 100 years ago. Yeah. So, yeah, I really appreciate that blessing and call. I would like to bless sort of the opposite. I would like to bless arguably, I think, the most intellectually humble character in the Harry Potter series, which is Rubius Hagrid. Again, you just describing this, you know, successful learner of languages. I think Hagrid embodies so much of that. I just think of that scene where he's just so happy to see dragons. He's just like, oh, there are dragons here at Hogwarts. And the real moment where I think that this serves him is with Madame Maxime. Madame Maxime really hurts him and to some extent betrays him, right? She has a completely reasonable reaction, but, you know, takes a turn in a conversation that deeply wounds Hagrid. And by the end of this book, they're back together. And I think forgiving someone for something like that and being open to the fact that this was a one-time incident and they were caught off guard or whatever it is takes a tremendous lack of defensiveness and therefore great intellectual humility. And he gets rewarded. We know that they're going to go on this really important diplomatic mission together. This is a relationship that is not only going to serve them, but is going to serve the wider community. And I can imagine someone saying something nasty to me one night when I proclaim my love for them and being like, never mind, go away. And I'm just, I think Hagrid shows such intellectual and emotional humility, and it's just so beautiful. So a blessing for Hagrid. And there's also something just kind of beautifully ironic in the characterization of Hagrid in that the right-sized person is the one who's real wrong size for the yeah. Wizarding World. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, he's so right-sized but doesn't fit into a doorway. This is kind of the beauty of that characterization. The world isn't the right size for him, yeah. right? Yeah. But he's perfect. Yeah. 
This has been a Not Sorry production, and Not Sorry Productions is a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Caitlin Hoffmeister. We are edited by AJ Uramas. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are distributed by ACAST. Thanks this week to Lara Glass, Ariana Nettleman, Julia Argy, Margaret H. Wilson, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Casper Turkile, and Stephanie Paulsell. Funding for this episode was provided by the University of California, Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center as part of its Expanding Awareness of the Science of Intellectual Humility initiative, supported by the John Templeton Foundation. 